Hi, this is Mish Hancock, and you are listening to Mishmash, a place where I get to talk to the weird, wacky, wonderful people of this world, people I adore and want to know more about. Today, my guest is Wally Seward. Wally has a PhD in political philosophy and ethics and over a decade of experience in civic and political engagement. He is uniquely equipped to apply the clarifying frameworks of political and moral theory to real world political controversy. Hi, Wally. Hello, Amish. How, How are, are you? you? I'm, I'm good. good. So, good so to be here. we got to meet because of TEDx Gateway Arch. Yep. You recently accomplished a talk at our crash course event. Tell tell us about it. Uh, the talk was fantastic. I had a lot of fun doing it. Um, it was really uh, the goal was really to give people a sense of the, the responsibility that's on them uh, as citizens of a democracy in terms of the decisions they make that affect people's lives uh, and the decisions they make whether they participate in politics or not. Right, because uh, right. not participating in politics is a decision as well. Exactly. And then when things happen to people, you as a member of that democracy are responsible for it. So I really tried to use kind of real world, kind of heart heartbreaking, kind of gut wrenching cases to give people sense of the moral importance of their civic uh, participation. And it is interesting because I think you know we both know one of the reasons is people don't is they think well what what how can I how can anything I do make any kind of a difference but we actually can we can um, you know the the only reason a democracy works is because there's this sense that. Whatever decision the government makes, um, my opinion was in some way, famer, way, shape, or form represented in the process. Um, otherwise, what reason do I have to accept uh, the laws that the government makes and right. the the government that it imposes on me? Um, so, if you think you know I can't make a difference, well, then why should you obey the law? So uh, hopefully we're going to get people saying, yeah, I should engage and not, I, I don't have to obey the law. But it is a really difficult question that about 2,000 years of political philosophy have not yet been able to answer very satisfactorily why I actually have an obligation to obey the law. I believe there is an obligation to obey the law, but it's not about the government. It's about the people around me. Got yeah, and 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 it is difficult. I mean, because some people are just like, well, screw it. Yeah, I don't have to obey the law. It doesn't do anything for me anyway, right? Yeah. I, the, the government's not helping me. Why should I help them, right? That's like kind yeah. of the yeah. That's a that's a that's a thought that it some people may have. And I think it's a lot of times engendered by how embedded in government people are that they don't even recognize it. They don't recognize that the air they breathe, the water that comes out of their tap, the road they drive on, the electricity that comes into their house, the buildings that they live in, the city that they live in, the infrastructure, the internet, the everything right. only exists in the context of a government that makes it possible. Right. Um, there's a lot of folks you know, that talk about uh, a free market. Uh, being a solution to a lot of things. And it is an amazing solution to producing widgets and products <laughs> and all kinds of cool stuff that I really want, my iPhone, my car. But we have to remember that the only way a market like that exists is inside the context of a government. For instance, a government is that entity that actually enforces contracts. 
So if I tell you, hey, I'm going to give you this much money now, and then when you've produced that product, you're going to send it to me. If there's no government, there's nobody to enforce that contract right. in the end. So exactly. how do you do business in the first place? Uh, so it's really... It, I think the the problem or one of the difficult issues with people recognizing the importance of government is how pervasive government actually is in their lives to the point where they simply take it as background noise and don't recognize it until it's gone. It's so true. Yeah. I mean, you think about it. So we pay taxes and we may complain mm -hmm. about paying taxes, but the taxes mean I can drive on this road yeah. to get to where I need to go. Right. Yeah, and people hear a lot about the difference in the world that entrepreneurs and companies from Apple to, uh, uh, you know, truck, uh, trucking companies or car companies make in the world because we talk about it all the time and there's advertising about it all the time. Um, but think about uh, the importance of a company that produces something really important, like my iPhone. I, I couldn't live without my iPhone right, at this point. Right, I don't want I'm, I'm not I'm trying to denigrate you. that. But if that company goes under and iPhone go, iPhones go away, that be that would really suck. If the government goes away, then you lose your rights, your property, you essentially lose the entity that protects your ability to pursue your own personal conception of the good life, mm -hmm. that protects your ability as a free and autonomous human being to understand what you think it is you want to do with your life and pursue that. I mean, would you rather uh, lose that right or would you rather lose your iPhone? Like, which one of the two is more important? Right. So what do you say to people um, now with how— what's going on with our government mm. now. And and there's a thought that people are questioning and thinking, where's the checks and balances right now? The checks and balances in a democracy, the final check in a democracy is always the people themselves. And I'm really one of those folks that's always going to turn around and point to the people that elect people to office. Right. And put pressure on them and go out in the streets and write letters and and um, make sure that things happen uh, from the ground up. That is the final check in a democracy. Now, our forefathers were ingenious in how they, des they designed our government. And in a lot of ways, the checks and balances are working, right? Congress has oversight over the executive. They're exercising that right now. The judicial is supposed to be an independent branch. Um, I think there's definitely some very real danger about the judicial getting captured by the executive branch right now. But the final check is always the people. And uh, I see them exercising that right. Uh, you know, people talk about how, how much anger there is out in the streets. And my question right now is not, is there too much anger in the streets, but is there enough? And why isn't there more? You look at other countries where, you know, people go out and they protest. You see it. They're, they're like, uh-uh, this should not be. And so do you feel that we are not giving voice, generally speaking? We are. I don't want to be the one that says we're horrible citizens. No, no. Um, but I do think that uh, that that we need to make sure that every generation understands the importance of protest, the importance of civil disobedience. Mm -hmm. The prime minister of Lebanon just had to resign because of massive protests. And if you think protesting in the United States is scary, go try protesting in right. Lebanon. Yes. Uh, so, and you know the 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 other thing that cracks me up is the folks that sit at home and say, oh yeah. Yeah, those people out there protesting, they're just having fun. Uh, why don't they go get a job? Um, 
Have you ever tried protesting? It's not fun. Not fun. It's terrifying. It's hard work. It's really uncomfortable. Uh, And people only do it when they feel they absolutely need to. So I feel like we should listen to them. I like it. Are Are we too comfortable? You think as a society? You think that's I, part of it? I do think. I do think, I think that, uh, that we are a little bit too comfortable. Um, and I think that's a natural outcropping of a wealthy society, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we we have all this wealth. We have all this amazing cushion that we build around ourselves. So that kind of lends us to to paying attention to that as opposed to the thing that's supporting the cushion, right? Gotcha. You never, you never think about the frame inside your couch. You only think about how soft the pillows are. Right. But if the frame goes away... Those pillows don't Not do you comfy. much good. Yeah, no exactly. Netflix watching for you tonight. <laughs> no, that's, that's exactly right. Absolutely. Well, Wally, and, we're going to take a quick, quick break, and we will be right back with you. Thank you. Okay. All right, we are back with Wally Seward. So let's talk about what... How is the United States viewed now in the world? I mean, I I just had like a little glimpse of it when I was in Europe um, this summer. And, you know, I I mean, and there's this thought in me that's kind of like what goes up must come down. Are we coming down? Do we need to have forefathers and foremothers get back to the table and rewrite (laughs) some things? I mean, what, you know, where are we at right now? Um. I don't know if I can answer the question about how we are viewed in the world, um, but what I can say is that the United States has a pretty unique space in world history in terms of who they have been and what they represent. We represent a 200 plus year old, absolutely radical experiment in people power. Mm-hmm. Um And that experiment has been a light and a beacon for people around the world who are seeking their own sovereignty and their own ability to be free and express themselves uh, for several hundred years now. But we also have to, so that makes us unique. It makes us fantastic. It makes us exceptional. It makes us all those things. And pretty responsible. And responsible, absolutely. With, With freedom comes responsibility. The two are always paired. Uh, but I think we also have to recognize that, that you know, while we want to, well, we want to say we've we've held this special place. We, there also has to be a little humility to recognize, well, we have been special for this long. Um, it's really not very long when we think about human history, right? Uh, and a blip. we, yeah, we are a small piece of it. That means that you know the formula that we figured out that's worked for this past couple of centuries. Um, is not one that's perfect. If there's one myth that I can bust for people, it's this idea that there is some perfect form of government, that if we wrote it down just right, if we plug it in and create it just right and press play, then it will run, government will will work well, and we can all just step aside and do do our uh, do the things that we want to do. That doesn't exist because no, the static world that it that it posits doesn't exist. Right. And people, People think of interesting things. Yeah. Right? And we get new powers. Every single day as human beings, we have new powers to blow things up, to keep people alive longer, to spend money, to create worlds uh, for ourselves, to immerse ourselves in completely created virtual worlds. Like We are creating new ways of humans uh, to live together on a minute-by-minute basis, and that process is just speeding up. And if there's new ways for us to possibly live together, you can bet that along with that have to come new new rules for how we think about ourselves as a yes. community. 
Yes. And so is there something to be said for people going back to the table and kind of rewriting things or redoing things? Or let's talk about what this should look like now. Because yeah. it's a 200-year-old yeah. system. Yeah. We have to yeah. update. Like, can we put a little update in yeah. there just like we do on our phones? Well, and yeah. <laughs> it's time I don't know if that's a good comparison, right? Because <laughs> no, every time right. your phone updates, something doesn't work the <laughs> oh, way you want it to. There's bugs. There's always bugs. There's no question you, about you it. Add people into yeah. the mix, there's yeah. going to be bugs. You know? Our four uh, parents uh, were really, really, uh, the thing that's amazing to them about, uh, to the, about them to me is they were scholars of political philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, they knew 2,000 years of human thinking and how human beings should live together. So they did not set down the rules that created our morality. What they did was they set down a set of rules about how we make decisions about our morality. And then they added on an extra piece that said, we can go back and change those rules. We have the ability to change the constitution. And the the constitution has been changed many, many, many times over the course of our history. And it always needs to be. Um, There's a push right now for a constitutional convention. Let's go back and let's look at this thing fundamentally. I'm not sure that we need to do that. Um, And I'm not sure that we as a country have the capacity to do that right now because what writing a foundational social document requires is deep, deep introspection, deep working across ideological divides, a deep commitment to shared values despite what may seem like current surface level conflicts. And I'm not sure that our country is ready for that right Uh, now. Yeah. But do we need to go back and look at uh, things like, for instance, uh, uh, money in politics Mm -hmm. and the fact that our, uh, the framers of our uh, constitution, actually concentrated wealth was one of the things that they were most scared of. That and foreign interference. These were the two big fears of our founding fathers. Is that happening right now? <laughs> oh, no, not at all. No concentrated wealth at Everything's all. Everything's great. Right? I mean, our country, I just saw something. I can't claim I can't claim this. I just saw something online. It's a really nice analogy. Our country right now is like a game of a monopoly where you sit two people down, you give one person 95% of the money and all the properties except for Baltic Avenue, and then you blame the other person when they lose. Yeah. And right. that's not a space from which you can uh, kind of move forward in an equitable way. Right. What about uh, one of the other things that, you know, I always think about is intent of law. You know, there's one thing to have a law, but then there's people that figure out all kinds of crazy things they can do, but it's st- it's still legal. And I'm like, yeah. but that wasn't the intention behind that law. <laughs> like, can we do something about that? You know, is there something that can be written of like, here's the intent yeah. and no, you don't yeah. get to use it to avoid paying taxes or, you know, a bunch of crazy yeah. stuff. Unfortunately, no. Okay. Uh, and the simple, Dang it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the the problem there is simply the limitation of language. Right? Gotcha. Language is a deeply imperfect medium yep. with which to capture the world and the universe as it is. And any word that attempts to capture a concept is going to miss pieces of that concept and add a, add in things that aren't necessarily in that concept. And that gets exponentially worse when you create it into sentences and paragraphs. And that gets much, much worse when you those sentences and paragraphs are built into deep legal frameworks. So there is, again, there's no possible kind of perfect thing 
thing that we can write down and it's clear from there forward. The only constant uh, in the only constant in government is the constant need for vigilance. Got ya. Yeah. Got you. There's there's no answer that kind of gives us the ability to just plug it in and move forward from there. <sighs> this world yeah, it has yeah, its challenges. Yeah. But I think it's so interesting, and I love that. I mean, that that's why, well, that's why you were on our stage, because the, what you presented and the ideas that you share, it's really interesting. It, it's something that we really should be sitting back and thinking about. Yeah. What is my role in all of this? Yeah. You know, and I'm one role, person, but what's my role, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, how do I relate to the people that I live with, that I'm mm -hmm. co-citizens with? I have to remember, co-citizens doesn't just mean I live down the street from you or I live across the state from you or on the other side of the country from you. It means if you and I are co-citizens, you and I are imposing a government on each other at gunpoint. Uh-huh. I got you. I am complicit in making the laws that you are required to abide by. And if you don't abide by those laws, somebody's going to show up with a gun and force you to. That is our moral relationship as co-citizens, not just we live down the road from each other. You know, and when we think about what we have to do, where we have to start in order to live together, what my role is, we have to start with each other. You know, before we can think about whether we should trust government or whether government trusts us, we have to think about, do I trust my fellow citizens? Right. And, and, and how about starting from a place we agree upon? Yeah. Like start with what we agree yeah. on. Because there's a yeah. lot people would all agree about. Absolutely. You know, I generally can, speaking. Yeah, I can give you a list of 12 values in three different categories, and I will promise two things. Number one, everyone will agree that these are our fundamental values. It doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum. And number two, you can take any controversy in the public sphere and you can map it onto this list of values. Interesting. Now, the idea here is to show that what we share is much bigger than what we disagree about. Which you know that's, I know that's the case. Yeah. You know. Now that's not to minimize our di di differences, right? Because what we disagree about can actually mean life or death for entire populations. Exactly. I'm not trying to minimize how important it is to figure out what, uh, within that area, but we should really be coming from a place of broad agreement about our fundamental values as Americans. Exactly. We're going to take another break. We'll be right back with Wally. We're back with Wally, and it's question time. All right. So let's go. I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the twelve fundamentals of American democracy. Okay. So let's talk about that. Right. What are they? Where can we learn about it? All right. Um, so I'm not gonna list off the twelve, but I can give you a sense of what they involve. Um, All right. So there's three main categories. Uh, one is personhood values, and those are values like liberty um, and like equality. Because if I am a human being and I'm a person, uh, let's say I'm a person because I have the ability to choose my own ends and pursue them, right? I have this rational capacity to say, this is what I think a good life looks like, and this is how I want to try to live it. Mm -hmm. Well, if that's the case, then I need the freedom to live it, 
Right? I need to. I need the equality to make sure that I don't have any less chance to live it than the guy next to me simply because of where I was born, what my skin color is, what my gender is, what my sexual orientation is, whether I'm differently abled, etc. Right. Uh, right. And we the so that's personhood values. We value people. We also value people's well-being, mm-hmm. and that's separate. Um, that includes. All of those things that I need, a roof over my head, food on my table, the uh, security to know my neighbor isn't going to shoot me and take my cows. Right. Uh, right? So that's those are kind of well-being values. Uh, so I need the freedom to do, uh, to kind of uh, be a person. I need all of the resources uh, to be well in the society that I'm in. And then finally, when... Those values come into conflict. For instance, when I have to think about security versus uh, liberty, right? Mm-hmm. When I think, for instance, about Edward Snowden, is national security more important or is whistleblower freedom more important? Those are, those are two values. Security is a, a, is a well-being value right. and liberty is a personhood value. Those are coming into conflict. That's where the third category comes in, and that's process values. Those are a set of values that aren't about kind of what's valuable deep in our gut. Those are about rational rules for how we make decisions fairly. That's the entire constitution and the basis of our democracy. So if you take people as valuable, if you take their well-being as valuable, and then when we have to make decisions about some people's rights or other people's rights or these people's well-being or that people's well-being, we need a third set of values about how we make those decisions. Yes. And that's where that list comes from. It's not meant to be perfect. It's not meant to be complete, but it's a rule of thumb guide. And it's something that I use and develop in the public values and political ethics workshops that I do. Awesome. And how would we find out about workshops? Well, I work for an organization called Focus St. Louis, which is a leadership development nonprofit here in, in town. I sometimes do those workshops uh, for Focus um, this December. We're actually going, to, I'm actually going to be doing a workshop called uh, Values Based Leadership and Political Controversy, which hopefully will give people some tools to think about these things as we're coming into an election year. I also get asked to do them. I'm going to be doing them at the Missouri uh, Municipal League. I get asked to do them around the country, different places. Uh, But if people are interested, uh, contact me. I'm easy to find. I'm at Focus St. Louis. Um, But the idea is handing people some tools to think about the values that we share as a society. And one of the analogies that I like to use, I said earlier, you know, what we agree on is bigger than what we disagree on. And I want to get back to that for a second. The analogy that I use is the following. If we think about the stuff that we disagree on politically in this country and getting into a knife fight about it, I compare that to like we all just sat down to a vast feast, right? We all were just sitting for hours drinking and eating and laughing and singing and having a fantastic time. And then we get into a knife fight about the table scraps. Yes. Because what we agree on is so much larger than what we disagree on. Now, here's an important point. That feast is so big 
that the table scraps can mean starvation for entire populations. Mm -hmm. So it's not that the table scraps are insignificant. It's just that compared to what we already agree on, the importance of individual freedom, the importance of equality, the importance of everyone having access to a roof over their head, everyone have, having access to a path to economic success, uh, everyone having an equal opportunity to have a say in our society. When we agree on all of that already, we get into a knife fight about the stuff we disagree about. It's just irrational. Right. Okay, so this is so appropriate to say, but that is food for thought. Yeah, all right. right? That is totally food for thought right there. Thank you, Holly. Yeah. All right, so my next question for you. Um, you call education the only true social silver bullet. Will you please speak to that? Education, higher levels of education are one of the only factors that are negatively associated with every bad thing that you see in society, that you we think about in society. Higher levels of education mean lower poverty, mm-hmm. lower crime, mm-hmm. uh, lower birth rates generally, uh, healthier people, better economy. Like everything seems correlated with education. Now, As uh, someone who's been trained in the social sciences, I want to be careful because there's a two-way street there, right? Uh, Wealthier and healthier societies also have better education systems, so it's not like they just built the education system and therefore became healthier and wealthier. But it's one of those, if you build it, they will come. It's one part, one side of the equation. And if you build up that one side of the equation, the other one comes along with it. Um, And unfortunately, we have an education system in this country Fortunately, which has done an amazing job to us for us uh, for many of us, unfortunately, f- continues to fail large portions of us because it's based on an antiquated funding system of property taxes, oh, which means that in places right. where where house and property values are high, you have good schools, so true. and in places where house or value, pro- property values are low, you have underfunded schools, and unfortunately, it's not. People uh, themselves destroying their houses that have made those property values low. It's an entire history of institutional racism yeah, that yeah, has created right. large sections uh, of uh, po- of poverty and large sections of low property value. Um, and uh, so we are intentionally creating a two-tiered society, and education is a core piece of that puzzle. Oh, wow. That is awesome. And it's so true. I mean, if we, because you think about that, like, so Amy Hunter was, yeah, and she, and one of our TEDx speakers, and she talks about, were you born in an unlucky zip code? You know, and yeah, some people were born in an unlucky zip code. They they weren't given the education that was afforded other people simply because of where they were born. They weren't given the education that they were afforded. They didn't have a place to pl- to play. Their house was filled with black mold, so they got asthma. So they missed school, uh, couldn't get to work. That health care, because their their uh, parents didn't have health insurance, meant that they went through bankruptcy, which meant they then lost their house, which meant they were homeless for a while, which meant they're now they're now have trauma, which means that for the rest of their life, any little thing that happens to them induces this fight or flight horrible hormone response and basically uh, creates for them a a 
10,000 more barriers to being successful. It doesn't mean they can't be successful, right. but it means we've created a mountain in front of them that they have to climb that exactly. others don't. Wow. Thank you, Ollie. That's am- that is amazing. That, uh, yeah, education. It's, it's education. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's give it's people a, that. It's a starting point. So I'm going to go into kind of a fun part now. All right. Because I want, I looked back at Yeah, that your, was kind of a downer. Let's do it. That's okay. We can't end on that note. Um, All right. I was looking at your LinkedIn. Okay. What should I go do if I ever go to, is it Passau, Germany? Passau. Passau. Uh, Passau. Did yes. you go there, actual, to Germany? Yeah. All um, right, let's talk about it. Well, I, what should I do there? I grew up partly in Germany and partly in the U.S. I have a dual really? citizenship. Okay. Uh, and I went back to Germany for uh, my final year of undergrad at the Universität Passau. Passau. Yeah. Uh, it's a beautiful medieval city sits right on the Austrian border wasn't touched by either world war it's got those cobblestone streets where you spread out your arms and you touch the buildings on both really? sides it sits in the middle of three rivers um, and you look up into you know at the end of the sound of music when they're kind of crossing those grass covered hills yes that's yes, yes, what yes. you're looking up into really? out of out of Passau it is absolutely ah. gorgeous it's just a couple hours train ride from Munich which is also just a ton of fun. Um, Southern Germany is an absolutely beautiful place to live and and and, uh, and be and vacation. I I also had the privilege of of uh, spending a year there as an exchange student at the university, and I loved their method uh, for getting us all of us exchange students. There were about sixty of us. Uh, our kind of introduction to. Uh, Passau and how we how they gelled us as a cohort. They simply uh, put us in a big room with two kegs of beer and said, "Have a party." <laughs> there are beer vending machines in the dorms. No. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh! In Bavaria, there beer you go. is in the constitution as a necessary necessary foodstuff for life. Yes. Maybe that'll help us with our constitution. Yes, I just, absolutely think beer would beer. help. Yes, <laughs> well, beer we, in Congress. We have solved the world's problem. <laughs> Hooray! Right. Right. It all right. goes down to beer. That's I love right. it. Absolutely. <laughs> Maybe it's not education. It's just beer yeah. and education. Beer and education. To mix yes. those together, yeah. and you have magic. Education first, okay. and, then, and then the beer. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, Wally, thank you yeah. so much. I mean, and thank you for for presenting at Crash it was, Course. It was a thank it was kind you. of a bucket list kind of thing. I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was a real challenge boiling things down to fourteen minutes. Yeah, uh, and it we, really, we put you through it, yeah, right? It but really forced it's so me to concentrate it, right? a little bit. Yeah, absolutely, totally worth it. It's a lot of work, but we so appreciate all the work people put into it because it's a commitment. I'm looking forward to the next one. All right. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you. And everyone out there, you have been listening to mishmash podcast please subscribe and have awesome days love you bye bye